Happy Thursday. Welcome to the briefing room coming to you from the Washington Bureau of ABC News. I'm John Santucci alongside Elizabeth McLaughlin two days in a row. It's a pretty good week, isn't yeah, it? Well, it means we're going to have to buy you a coffee or something <laughs> after this. But we've had a busy week here in Washington. We're going to start off with what's happening right now up on Capitol Hill. A major rebuke to President Trump and his national emergency. The Senate passing a resolution blocking the national emergency. Elizabeth, you cover the Pentagon for us. The vote 59 to 41. 12 Republicans voted with all 47 Democrats today. It is pretty remarkable rebu rebuke, and we're going to see this now go to the president's desk. It could be his first veto in over two years as president. But as you know, when we first broke the story over a month ago that he was right. going to declare national emergency, it was extremely controversial. You've now seen Republicans joining in and saying, we don't want this to happen. We think this is the president stepping over mm -hmm. his bounds and what the, the powers that he should hold here. Well, and you mentioned that possible veto. Let's go over to the White House to ABC's Jordan Phelps. Uh, Jordan, uh, the phone just lit up right before we went on, which means we got a reaction already from uh, the commander in chief. Uh, what's what is he going to do on this one? Yeah, surprise, John. The president announced with a simple one word, all caps tweet, veto. Uh, that's uh, really not a shock. The president had already said that that would be what he uh, would do. But no mention of those 12 Republicans who really embarrassed him today uh, by voting against him here. Uh, but the president remains confident in his authority uh, to go forward with this. And, you know, the simple math here, John, is that they don't have the votes to override him. So. Yeah, and, and we're looking right now at the list on screen of the senators. Uh, some not surprising. I mean, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, um, Mitt Romney, uh, obviously a, a person that's going to come at the president on a several different ways. But others like Rob Portman, uh, that the president has set, called a friend uh, and a supporter, uh, not someone that the president is going to be uh, too thrilled with today. But coming back here uh, to you, Elizabeth, you know, you just mentioned there, we were the first to report the president was considering a national emergency. Um, it feels like a decade ago. What was this, like about a month and a half, something it like that ago? It was only about a month ago. And you'll remember that there was an argument about how much money he wanted for that wall spending. So ultimately, the national emergency secured some of that funding. Mm -hmm. The rest he actually got from other means. So this is about the $3.6 billion that was coming out of the Department of Defense's military construction budget. We're going to have more on that later in the show and how contentious yeah. that topic has been uh, for the Defense Department. But that's really what this money was going to be used for, was to build up some of these defenses along the southern border in states like Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. And so this is where he's going to have to decide, how is he going to get the rest of the money? It seems like he's going to veto it, as Jordan mm -hmm. just told us. And that tweet tells you uh, pretty specifically. Yeah. So now you're really setting up a position where Congress is going to have to decide, do they continue to try to go against the president on this? And as you're, they're getting ready to authorize more money for the right. next fiscal year. So now you're making it sound like they're not going to want to give him that extra money he's requesting for the wall in fiscal year 2020. Well, well, let's get an answer on that. Let's go up to Capitol Hill. ABC's deputy political director, Mary Alice Parks, is there for us. Mary Alice, uh, uh, obviously you, you watched the vote just as we did. Uh, where does Congress move forward now on this one? John, you will notice that we pivoted. We had the Senate behind me, and then we swung, and the Supreme Court is over my shoulder instead, and that's because this is quickly becoming a legal question. We assume that this will be wrapped up in the courts in the coming months. Those Democrats are not going to just take this veto lying down. They have said all along that they are opposed to this national emergency, and they're going to fight him on this. It was unbelievable to me that 12 Republicans, though, joined those Democrats in this fight. Like you said, not just those few Republicans who have 
on a number of occasions voted with Democrats. No, this was a whole big cohort of them. And it came back to a constitutional question for them. When we talked to a lot of those Republican senators, they weren't talking about the wall or the border. They were talking about the Constitution and whether or not the president had the legal authority to do this. The Constitution says pretty clearly that the power is in the purse for the Congress and that the people's branch, the legislative branch, is the one that gets to decide where he gets to spend money. And Mary Alice, uh, j just uh, stick with us for a second because I want to go back over to Jordan Phelps at the White House before we let her go. Jordan, Mary Alice just pointed out, and, and I, I think you would agree, uh, that Congress is not um, going to let this veto stand. But what is the president's plan here? Because we know, as, as uh, Elizabeth, myself, and others reported out at the time, uh, that they were consulting uh, with uh, the new White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and the other uh, folks in the different agencies that would be impacted here, Department of Defense, Homeland Security. Um, do they have a plan right now to actually combat um, a potential fight from Democrats on Capitol Hill if it goes to the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, John, the White House is confident uh, in, the, in the president's authority here. They've expressed that on a number of occasions. Uh, one thing we could also see, John, um, is the president has said today, kind of volunteered, that he might be willing to uh, pass this kind of compromise solution to limit presidential authority down the road at a, at a date later than today. So you might see the president try to find some way to kind of compromise here uh, in the weeks ahead. Jordan Phelps at the White House will let you get back to it. Thank you very much, Jordan. We appreciate it. Coming back here in the Bureau, we're going to stay on this topic, though, about the national emergency because the acting Secretary of Defense, Shanahan, was up on the Hill today. Elizabeth grilled. It was intense. And I think part of the reason could be is that he could get the nomination from President Trump maybe even as soon as tomorrow. The president is heading to the Pentagon for a tank meeting, but you never know what could happen when he shows up. It could be another announcement there. So we're going to be looking for that. But when he was on the Hill, it kind of became a de facto confirmation hearing, if you will. Yeah. And it really focused on that border money. So the senators are very concerned that they have not seen a list of the military construction projects that could be impacted when that $3.6 billion goes out of that account. And they care about this, right? Their constituents care about yeah. these projects that are in their home states. And he was grilled. It ultimately came down to Senator Reid saying, I need you to give me this list by the end of the day. Mm -hmm. The secretary said he would, but it escalated. Senator Kane said, look at the vote was earlier today. We needed the list a long time ago, weeks right. ago, not by the end of today. He's actually accused the Pentagon of sandbagging, slow walking this list. So it was a tough day for him. He handled a lot of other questions quite well, but the military construction stuff was, was tough. And I think we have some sound actually from that hearing up on Capitol Hill earlier today. Let's take a listen to the acting secretary of defense. From the very start, we have worked to be 100% transparent with Congress, 100%. Coming back uh, here inside the Bureau, no, that was the Acting Secretary of Defense. Mary Alice Parks, uh, coming back to you on this topic. Um, if this is the person that President Trump ultimately puts up to be the Secretary of Defense, uh, you know, I know from Elizabeth's reporting and others, uh, He'll probably get confirmed, but it won't be an easy road. There are Republicans uh, that don't have that same relationship that they had with Jim Mattis when he was in the job. 
Right, and they have talked about how they appreciated the expertise and experience that Mattis brought to that job. There's hardly anyone here in Washington as beloved a figure, and so it was a big loss when he left. And they're looking for someone that can replace him with the same level of gravitas. And obviously, Democrats have been extremely critical of this border wall project, of the money being moved around in ways that they think is not transparent enough. And I, will, I would be surprised if we saw very many Democrats willing to cross the aisle and vote to confirm him if he did end up being the nominee. All right, Mary Alice, stick with us. We're going to come back to you a little later um, in uh, in our show. Um, but I do want to bring in uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal uh, from Connecticut. Uh, Senator, uh, we appreciate you joining us. And we're going to be talking to you in a second about another topic. But uh, we're just talking right now um, about the vote that just happened um, up in the Senate regarding uh, President Trump's national emergency. President's already responded, Senator. Uh, one word tweet, uh, veto. How do Democrats uh, now continue this battle? Number one, we're going home for a break. And most of us working at home are going to be talking to our constituents. We're going to be telling them why we voted against this power grab by the president, how it violates the Constitution, and actually how wasteful it is of taxpayer dollars. That kind of case made to the American people, I think, will be very compelling. And a number of our colleagues are going to come back and perhaps be willing to defend this institution because. What the president's doing is taking the power to spend money after Congress has refused to allocate money for this vanity project, mm -hmm. a medieval wall that will accomplish nothing. Well, Senator, we're, of course, uh, following uh, the vote and following where the fight will go. We're going to keep watching that here at ABC. Um, but I do want to switch gears with you, sir, because um, uh, we asked you to join us today. Um, you are the senator from Connecticut. There's big news in your home state uh, regarding uh, the families of Sandy Hook. Uh, we learned from the Connecticut Supreme Court uh, that they can now sue uh, the gunmaker of the AR-15. Uh, your thoughts on that? Let's remember that the reason that this decision is such an extraordinary moment is that the gun manufacturers have enjoyed a complete legal immunity, an absolute shield, virtually unique among any businesses. Anytime they make a product, no matter how defective it is, no matter how negligent they may be, sorry, no day in court. So this state Supreme Court decision opens a path for the Sandy Hook families, the brave and courageous loved ones of the 26 extraordinary individuals who lost their lives as a result of a massacre where that kind of AR-15 was used. And all this decision says is that the families can have their day in court. I'm very proud of the Connecticut Supreme Court most important of the families because of their courage and strength. And this decision will potentially change the legal landscape so that more gun manufacturers can be held accountable. As, as Senator, I couldn't agree with you more regarding the strength of these families. I, I remember driving up to Newtown, Connecticut, just a few hours after that shooting. And one of the families uh, that I met that weekend, uh, Nicole Hockley, uh, she's joining us now on the phone. She lost uh, her son, Dylan, uh, in that shooting. Nicole, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to, to join us this afternoon. Um, I, I, Nicole, you know, I, I, uh, I, I've covered your story for so long. I know how hard you uh, and others have worked with Sandy Hook Promise to 
to educate um, uh, families and schools around the country um, on this topic. Um, and I know this battle in particular, Nicole, this has been a long time coming today for you. Okay. This has been a long time coming, and today is a good day. I mean, the ruling is, is the right ruling. It's a just ruling, and it does provide a path to show that although that ruling, uh, the con congressional ruling around immunity for gun manufacturer exists, it's not a blanket immunity. And that's what the Connecticut Supreme Court said. They still have to be accountable for the way they market these these, these weapons, um, and just because they have immunity against being sued doesn't mean that, that, ha that they're immune and can do whatever they want. And the way they market these firearms are reckless. They're dangerous because they are targeting young, at-risk, disturbed men, such as the shooter that took the life of my son. So yeah. these practices need to change, and our day in court is going to help make that happen. And, and, and Nicole, we have Senator Blumenthal, who's been with us. And, Senator, I know that uh, the, uh, Nicole Hockley and, uh, and others at Sandy Hook Promise, like Mark Barden, have worked with you um, and others uh, within the Connecticut delegation. What more can be done? at the moment on a federal level. We know that we've tracked uh, too often. We've come on the air and said a school shooting. This has happened, I think, of Vegas, Florida uh, from last year. Um, where does this battle stand uh, up on Capitol Hill at the moment? I've introduced a measure that will completely repeal the law. It's called PLACA, which is an acronym in effect for a blanket immunity for the gun industry. The proposal I've made is to repeal that law, and I'm going to continue to pursue it. This decision will really create some momentum for us, and so action at the federal level is now more possible, but other action as well on a comprehensive set of measures that will achieve steps against gun violence, background checks, now before the Senate, universally applied to all sales a red flag statute that will enable judges after due process to take guns away from dangerous people who are about to kill or injure themselves or others. A number of these kinds of sensible common sense measures is where I hope Congress will go and we are breaking the grip of the NRA. We are stopping the gun lobby from holding the United States Congress in its hands and I think we're going to see a new day in the coming elections already. Gun violence prevention was on the ballot last November, and gun violence prevention won. And Nicole, I know this lawsuit was filed many years ago back in 2014. Can you tell us what's next for your family and for these other Sandy Hook families going forward here? Well, for the, for the families that are involved in the lawsuit, I think we're now waiting for discovery to start, or rather to restart, because we, we had started discovery on the materials and all the internal documents that Remington holds around their sales and marketing practices. As I understand it, now that discovery can proceed and we can move towards trial. So I don't know when exactly that will happen, but I am very much looking forward to that day. Well, I, I, like I said, Nicole, I know just from uh, speaking to you for, for so many years, I know this has been a, a long-fought battle for you and so many others. Uh, I thank you for taking the time to call in, and uh, we wish you the best on this journey. And, and please give my best to Mark and Tim and others at Sandy Hook Promise. Really do appreciate it, Nicole. Will do. Thank you and so much. Thank you. And Senator Blumenthal, appreciate your time on, as well on this, sir. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you.
Switching gears here in the briefing room, uh, we have been covering all week uh, the story about the college uh, tuition scandal. Um, it is insane, <laughs> to say the it least. Is, more people have been talking about this, I think, at bars and restaurants across yeah. the country because it touches on so many people's lives and their yeah. children's lives, and I think it's really sparked a note. It, totally. And the other part that we have to remember is the cost of college, right? How much it takes people to actually afford to go and get a degree, all the different loans uh, people have to take out. Um, and yesterday on Capitol Hill, there was a hearing about this. They were talking about um, all the different grants and uh, scholarships and monies and uh, uh, things you have to get from banks, loans, how you actually put together to pay for a college degree. Um, and we have someone who actually testified at that hearing. Uh, we're joined right now by uh, Janae Parker. She's 29 years old. Um, and she was talking yesterday about all the different ways that she was piecing together um, uh, to actually afford college. Ms. Parker, I really appreciate you coming in uh, this afternoon. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience yesterday. I'm, I'm sure uh, that was not uh, something you expected uh, to share up on Capitol Hill. It was an intense experience, um, but it was an experience that had to happen. I had to tell my story, because it's not my story. It's everyone's story, um, American college students, what we're going through. Yeah, and, and you know, and, 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 I'm, and I read a little bit earlier about, um, about what you had to do uh, to, to pay for college. I mean, I, I can relate to this myself. You, you took mm -hmm. out more than $20,000 uh, in federal and private loans. Uh, you received financial aid uh, through Pell Grants. A and working how many jobs, Ms. Parker? Sometimes three <laughs> at the most, um, but two and three jobs at a time. If that's what I had to do to, in order to make sure like our basic needs were met for my daughter and I while being able to attend school. You know, you know, um, I, I can share with you a personal story. I'm curious if uh, if this is something you went through as well. Um, you took out private loans, you said, right? Correct. I did. The one, the one thing many people talk about with private loans. I know I we dealt with it with my wife. Is that mm -hmm. part of the private loans? They constantly get resold to other people. Mm -hmm. That it's actually hard to keep up and figure out who you're paying. Who you're paying, and then the interest <laughs> that gets added on top of the loan itself. What, did you, what do you want members of Congress to take away from yesterday? What do you hope they heard from your story? Um, I hope that they heard that we all want an opportunity, um, an equitable opportunity, and access to a college education. And, and it's just not happening the way college tuition is right now in order to survive and take care of our families. And, and the story we were talking about here on the top, uh, like Elizabeth was saying, uh, so many people uh, reacting to that this week. I don't have to tell you. I mean, 50 individuals around the country arrested, uh, writing big checks uh, to, to get uh, their respective children uh, into college. Some of them uh, faking. Uh, they were part of the rowing team or others. Uh, uh, I think water polo is another sport. I don't know how you fake water polo, but so be it. Um, but what was your reaction as somebody that, you know, as your story clearly lays out, did this the right way. What was your reaction to hearing that? Um, honestly, not surprised because mm -hmm. I understand that the system has been unfair um, for generations before mine. So it was more so, I don't want to say happy, but I am happy that things are coming to head. Yeah. Yeah, de definitely a, a, a big week of exposure. Um, for, for, for what's going on here. Well, uh, Janae Parker, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story with us this afternoon, and uh, we know you're going to keep fighting for it up on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Thank me.
Thank you for your time. Coming back uh, inside the briefing room. Uh, so there was one uh, other uh, story here that uh, how could we not do a show and not talk about this? 2020. I feel like I'm going to hear about it every single day. You are, especially until, if you keep coming on this until, show. <laughs> until fall. So there's the board. It is expanded yet again. Congressman Beto O'Rourke jumping in the field overnight. Uh, and ABC's Paula Farris is already on the campaign trail. I mean, Paula's been on the campaign trail forever, but she actually caught up with Congressman O'Rourke because he made his first trip to Iowa today as a declared candidate. Take a listen to Paula's exchange with him. Good to see you again. Hi. How are you? Nice Who is to see that? you again. Nice we got a full field. What sets you apart, Beto? I'm going to allow people to, to determine what sets us apart from, from one another. All, all I can tell you is, is I want to be able to bring people together. Um, we've had uh, a history of being able to do that in El Paso and in Texas, uh, ensuring that our party affiliation or geography or our race um, doesn't separate us or keep us from this great moment to, to meet the challenges that we have in, in this country. Um, you know, small business owner, served in the city council and served in, in Congress, uh, always have been about serving and finding a way to get it done. Thank you. Appreciate that. Can hope change and unity beat Trump? Or do you have to be a street fighter? I think you have to believe in the genius of this country. And the only way to call that forth is to bring everyone in and shut no one out. Take no one for granted, write nobody off. Um, so I'm, I'm for everyone. And whether that's a, a winning strategy, it's the only way I, I know how to run and, and know how to serve. Thank you. So I was going to say, Elizabeth, uh, this is candidate number but I don't remember, and I that's why we, we're going to phone a friend. Yeah. Mary Alice Parks, our deputy political director, back with us for this segment. She'll know. Um, Mary <laughs> Alice, uh, I, 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 what number are we up to? Where are we now? How many is this? 15 by my count, but there's some <laughs> gray there. There's some folks. There's some folks who have only announced exploratory committees, others that have declared candidacy. So the, fun, the number is fungible. Uh, <laughs> but look, this is a guy who knows Capitol Hill. He was up here for six years, a three-term member of Congress. Obviously, most people around the country got to hear his name when he ran that pretty inspiring, explosive race against Senator Ted Cruz. Um, I say inspiring because that's sort of his message. He's always talking to Democrats about, about coming together, about working together, about being willing to bring a Democratic message even to somewhere like Texas or the South. Um, and, he, and he did inspire Democrats. He raised a ton of money from around the country. But you know, it is different to run a Senate race, a state race, compared to a national race. And he's now gonna be competing against fellow Democrats who have been doing just that and doing just that for a while. So it's gonna be a, a tough fight for him, for all of them. They're gonna have to find a way to distinguish themselves, like Paula asked. And it's a crowded field, so that's a, that's a big challenge. Mary Alice, I wanted to ask you, I know there's a lot of other candidates, as you said, in this race. Do you think he's going to be running left, uh, closer to the right, as it looks a little more crowded? It looks like a lot of these candidates are going to be running in the progressive field. What's your sense of uh, what his platform is going to be? Yeah, that's a really good question. He's going to have to define his platform and explain it. And he's going to get tough policy questions from those Democratic voters. They want to know exactly where someone stands on Medicare for all, exactly where someone stands on, on free college, uh, debt-free college. They want very specific answers about climate change. Democratic caucus, the Democratic base right now is engaged in some complicated policy fights. And there's a big range, a wide range of policy answers. I think that's going to be one of the big challenges for him that he's going to have to step up to in the next few weeks. 
what looked like very progressive in Texas is not necessarily going to look very progressive to a California Democratic voter. So he's going to have to decide exactly which lane he's running in. And, and one thing we do know, Mary Alice, is that after um, his loss, uh, he uh, had a very extensive conversation uh, with uh, President Obama. Right. Yeah, it was big news. A lot of people were shocked that President Obama took that meeting and for so long uh, got a lot of wisdom advice, I would, I would hope for him. I mean, mm -hmm. could you imagine what it's like to pick President Obama's brain? Uh, talk about someone that was able to transfer a job here on Capitol Hill and take it straight to the White House. Uh, you know, I think that he's trying in a lot of ways to sound like President Obama out there on the campaign trail. You heard Paula use the term hope and change, a very Obama term. But again, the, President Obama uh, could also dial in to very specific policy proposals. He could bring some of that wonk factor. And it'll be interesting to see whether Beto O'Rourke can do the same. ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. The busy season getting started for everybody. Uh, but at least you got some sunshine out there today, exactly. Mary Alice. Not so bad. <laughs> uh, it's a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous day. And you can really feel like the game is already underway. We're gonna be covering every bit of it. Game up so much. Thanks again, Mary Alice. Appreciate it. Uh, coming back inside the bureau. Um, Ending on this note today, a uh, sad note, uh, the author of Title IX passed away today. Senator Birch Bay, um, of course, uh, putting that historic uh, law on his shoulders, uh, carrying it through the Senate. 1972, Elizabeth. Yes, and some very interesting statistics, statistics, excuse me, statistics here. It's been a long week. Uh, in 1972, one in 27 high school girls played sports. What do you think that number was this year? I don't know. It was one in two. Wow. High school girls were playing sports, and I know I appreciate that back in my high school days, the ability to get out there with the boys. Um, another good statistic for you, in 1972, women earned fewer than 10% of all medical and law degrees. Now in 2017, women were 15.3% of law school grads. 50.3. 50.3. 50 50.3. Thank you for correcting me. I on cheated. That. I had a little Were you looking? Over there. Of course I was. I try every now and again. Well, uh, all the best to the senator and his family, and of course, so many people affected by that law. That is going to do it for us today in the briefing room. For Elizabeth McLaughlin, I'm John Santucci. Make sure to download the ABC News app for any news anytime. You're watching ABC News.